Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. I am your host and servant in Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual. Today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the text that went into the Advent Midweek Sermon that I did last Wednesday, as well as the Advent 2 Sermon that I did uh, through your lectionary series B that I did on Sunday, Advent 2. Um, it's it's kind of funny how Advent works out this year. Usually you've got you know the four Sundays in Advent. This year, for whatever reason, uh, we've got three Sundays in Advent, and the fourth Sunday in Advent actually is December twenty fourth, Christmas Eve. So our way of <laughs> our way of uh, uh, approaching this challenge is we have an Advent four service in the morning, Sunday morning service. You know, you light the fourth candle, and then in the evening we actually have the Christmas Eve service, which is kind of nice. We're actually ripping off the uh, the Anglicans service of, I think it's service of uh, carols and readings or whatever, and everybody gets to play with fire and play with their candles, and <laughs> they get to have all their hymns, and the, the kids get to be involved in, in reading the text and, and stuff as well. And, uh, it, it, it's nice. And then, of course, Christmas morning, uh, the service that I expect few people usually show up to in most churches is actually going to be on Monday. So Monday, we have a Christmas morning service at, you know, at 10 a.m. And again, I don't expect too many people to show up for that, but it's, it's, it's good to have, it's good to have mass on Christmas. <laughs> that's what the uh, that's what the word means. In any case, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start off with the text. I'd like to kind of read through the text, talk about some of the things that came up in the text that I that didn't maybe make it into the sermon. Then uh, I'm going to go through the texts first for the Sunday text. Uh, then I'm going to go through the Wednesday text, and I'm going to talk about things that did or did not make it into the sermon. And then at the end of this episode, you'll get to hear uh, you'll get to hear both both sermons in whatever order I end up putting them in. The Advent Midweek Sermon is only about seven minutes long. I may actually end up putting that one in first since fewer people have heard it. Uh, and the Advent 2 Sermon was, you know, normal length for me, which is about 13 to 14 minutes. <laughs> I've gotten into uh, disagreements with other pastors about how long should a sermon be. And there's there's some there's some interesting back and forth on there. Is For the longer sermons, you know, the pastors will say, well, you know, the people came to hear you preach, so give them more, you know, give me more Christ. Uh, and, and I get that. And the argument for the shorter sermons is, well, say what you need to say, don't belabor the point, just get on with it and shut up. Don't, don't bury the person in, in word salad and, and, you know, just try to make up for a point with, you know, quantity, <laughs> quality over quantity. That's, that's the idea for a, a shorter, more condensed sermon. Uh, and, and there's some different ideas going back and forth about, you know, uh, who should, should you have a longer sermon? Should you have a shorter sermon? There's different, uh, occasions where you would have a shorter sermon. You would probably have a shorter sermon at a funeral or a, a wedding or something like that, for example, whereas you would have a longer sermon on a, on a Sunday morning and you can make a distinction between sermon and homily if you really want to. Um, but whatever. Anyways, I'll let that argument happen on a different time. Here, let's focus on the text. First, let's go over the text for um, that I used for the sermon on Sunday. And this is Advent 2. Now, yes, there's the, the text from Mark, Mark 1, I believe it is. But actually, I was preaching on the epistle, the epistle reading. The epistle reading is actually from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. So I'll read that in the ESV first, and then I'll kind of discuss some of the things that, that jump out from the text that may or may not have made it into the sermon. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent, be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the text that I wrote the sermon for on uh, on this past Sunday, Advent 2, again, through your lectionary series B, is what I'm doing this time. And this text in particular, uh, well, let me see, what did I, I don't even remember what I titled the sermon, something about, oh, I think I titled it something like, God is patient with us, we can be patient with him. And, and the, the, the summary of the sermon, if you don't want to bother listening to it, is basically that God is not just, you know, taking his sweet time and delaying for no reason whatsoever, but the reason Christ has not returned yet is that God wishes all to come to repentance, all to, uh, all to come to faith. So God is taking his time in bringing people to faith. He's not taking his time because, you know, he's lost track of time or uh, we need to doubt that his return will come or anything like that. He has a good reason that he's taking his, his time. He's working on something right now. And I get into that in the sermon a bit. But this is, this is interesting. This is a, a oft misunderstood or misappropriated text here. This is, this is so, such a bizarre sort of way that I've, I've seen people shoehorn this text into a completely different issue. And you know I'm going to talk about it, uh, old earth, young earth creationism, that sort of thing. For whatever reason, I, honestly, I don't find the topic terribly interesting. I think it's very simple and straightforward what the Bible says, how long it took to create the earth and everything. But for some reason, people like really, really want to make it complicated and argue about it and say, well, you know, you could read the text in these hundred million different ways. Oh, like, whoop de doo <laughs> you know, it, it pretty clearly says what it does. And you're really, really reaching to try to stretch and fit, you know, some million or billion years into the text somehow. It's, it's kind of frustrating uh, to a degree that, you know, it's like, yeah, obviously, obviously you're getting this idea from, you know, whatever, whatever your understanding of, of science and naturalism is that says that the world is however many millions of years old and you want to somehow not appear foolish to the scientific community. You don't want to uh, appear like a, a bumpkin Christian who just doesn't doesn't ap- appreciate the brilliance of science. So you want to find some way to make the Bible jive with what you understand and you know the scientific naturalism realm. But this this set of verses in particular, and then you, know, you can do whatever you want with that. But this set of verses in particular is is I think abused when people try to use this to apply to the age of the Earth. Uh, now, follow my logic here, if, if you can, because this is the logic that is used. Um, so let me see. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Right? So this is, this is obviously kind of comparative, comparative, comparative language. This is, kind of, this is talking about the patience of God. So if it takes a thousand years for a family to come to Christ, well, you know what? That it's worth it. If God has to wait a thousand years to bring you to, bring you to himself, then it's worth it. And this is, this is a hyperbolic language. It's describing the unreasonable patience of God that, that, you know, we would get impatient after a day and he's willing to wait a thousand years, that sort of thing. Um, and, and, you know, it's going both ways. Um, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Uh, so, and, and it's, I guess, the importance of, you know, repentance or whatever one day is as a thousand years. Anyway, so you've got this, you've got this explanation of the, of the great patience of God and the great love of God in this hyperbolic language. The way this text is misused is, well, you know how God is talking about the six days of creation? Well, you see, God, 
just doesn't understand the difference between a day and a thousand years. And when we say a thousand years, we really mean a million. We actually mean 400 million years. So a day is as 400 million years is actually what this text is, is kind of talking about. It's saying that God has no concept of time. He is incapable or unwilling to describe the, the actual accurate time the timeline of the events, particularly of creation. It, it, it's such a bizarre take to try to like desperately say, look, yes, the Bible does say six days in creation. And it says this multiple times in the Bible, not just in Genesis 1 and 2. It refers back to it multiple times throughout Scripture. So it's pretty clear that six days is six days. But what's really going on, these people would argue, what's really going on is that God just, his grasp of time is so, you know, his ways are not our ways, and 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 what he's describing to us just doesn't come across in, in, in the same way that he means it. And when he really means, uh, when he says, you know, six days, he really means millions and billions of years, or he means that he can't conceive of this of this creation of his time. Um, it's It doesn't make any sense. It's kind of, it's actually kind of, you know, blasphemous. It's kind of insulting to say, you know what, God created time, but does not understand it and does not understand the language that he also created to communicate with us, whom he also created. It's just, <laughs> there's so many steps here that don't work, that rely on God's ignorance or inability or unwillingness to communicate clearly. If God clearly communicates, you know, six days in the Old Testament, we, we could, you know, just take him at his word. We don't have to come up with all these reasons of, well, you know, God really, he needs us to translate for him. He needs us to correct his statements to us. That's really dangerous territory, especially if you apply it to, to anywhere else or whatever. You know, so, well, you know, God says you are saved by faith through grace, so that, you know, not work so that no one may boast or whatever. What he really means is that you are saved by a combination of your charity, your, your good works, uh, and, and the faith that, that accompanies your good works. But, you know, but, but God didn't really say it clearly, so we have to reinterpret it more clearly than he could write it down. I mean, this is really dangerous territory. You can get into this with, with any topic, whether you're talking about interdenominational disagreements, or you're talking about like outright heresy, where you've got, you know, Arians and stuff like that talking about, you know, well, you know, God is actually, Jesus is a created being, you know, and it says that, you know, he's the son of God, but really it means he's the adopted son of God, and he was adopted at the baptism of, of Christ. And like, again, there's no limiting principle. I know I like using that phrase a lot, limiting principle, but once you start down this road of like, you know what, I got to correct God's language here, because he says this, but did he really say? I mean, this is the devil's the devil's lie at the beginning. Did God really say that dot, dot, dot? And then kind of slightly rephrases it, slightly says, well, you know, he doesn't really mean that. You surely will not die, but your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. He surely didn't mean six days. He meant, you know, six million or 60, I don't know, 600 million years. That's what he actually meant, uh, you know, because after all, a day is like a thousand years, so we can't trust God when he says how long something took, right? So, I mean, there's other reasons to disagree about the age of the earth um, and, and, and whatever, and that's, and, you know, that's, that's a different video, but if, if your argument is, well, you know, God doesn't understand time, and this verse, excuse me, this verse in Second Peter clearly demonstrates that God has no idea what he's talking about when he's referring to time, and he'll just interchangeably use thousands of years or one day, and to him it's no difference. This is, this is just, I mean, it's just a gross misunderstanding of the text. This is uh, a horrible misrepresentation of what's, what's being said here in the text. Now, if you want to understand what the text actually means, uh, as, as Roseboro would say, the three, the three keys to biblical, sound biblical 
exegesis or context, context, and context. Just read the context. What What is the language talking about? Oh, it's talking about the patience of God. Oh, okay, duh. <laughs> right? This is not terribly hard to understand. But if you're just, you know, oh, well, you know, a thousand days is... <laughs> it's interesting, the, the crowd that will say, well, you're not supposed to read Genesis 1 and 2 literalistically, but you are supposed to read this text literalistically, whereas a, a day is as a thousand years. Like, it literally means God can't tell the difference between these two, but you can't literally read six days in creation. <laughs> it's just so inconsistent. Uh, if you're going to be wrong about theology, be consistently wrong about theology. I'm not saying I'm 100% right, but I strive for consistency in my errors. <laughs> like if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna create it, if I'm gonna follow an error in interpreting the text one place, I'll, I'll try to be consistent and have the error elsewhere as well. Uh, so I ask that all other people who make errors do the same thing, uh, do it consistently. All right. So, anyways, there's that. There's the disagreement over the day in a thousand years. Um, so yeah, verse nine explains it. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but his patience. So he's talking about the patient, patience. He wishes that everyone uh, should receive, should reach repentance. Uh, Day of the Lord come like a thief in the night. Well, if you know a thief in the night is coming, it's not really a surprise. This is something that I get into a bit in the sermon, that at the same time we're, we're told, you know, it's going to be a surprise, but we know that the surprise is coming, so we can prepare for the surprise. So it's, it's a surprise, and it's also kind of expected. This is the interesting part for me. This is the part that that I really I really love in this in this section, and I didn't really have uh, none of this made it into the sermon. It's just kind of interesting speculation on on what is what happens after death. Uh, um, this this text, like verse eleven, talks about you know these things. Oh well, let me see, let go. Uh, daylight. Uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away. So you think about like all the celestial bodies, everything in the sky with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works done there on it will be exposed. Uh, all these things are going to be thus dissolved, etc., etc. Um, uh, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Like this this kind of language, this is in, this is really fascinating for me. I would love to kind of to know more about, you know, what does this mean? Uh, and you're thinking about, okay, well, when you die, your body remains on the earth, uh, your soul goes up to heaven, and then on the last day, God raises your body and makes it somehow perfect and rejoins it with your soul, right? But heaven itself is a temporary location. Heaven is great and fantastic and all, but it's not the final resting place of the Christian. The new heavens and the new earth, so this new sort of creation after, that's the final place, but what happens to the earth, what happens to the universe, what happens to the galaxy? It looks like, according to this verse, these verses, it looks like God kind of destroys all of creation and, and makes a new and perfect universe. So, you know, whatever that might look like. Now, if, if it were my choice, I think, I think it would be kind of neat if, you know, on the last day, you're, you know, after heaven or whatever, on the last day, we, you know, we're immortal and, and we can travel around and we, we got, you know, we can live as long as we want to. It'd be kind of cool to like, you know, be able to dig up all the, all the, you know, all the previous civilizations and be like, oh, cool, you know, I dig up, you know, the rest of, you know, what, what's under all the sand in Egypt or whatever, <laughs> you know, like see, like, oh, I found Atlantis, like see all these cool lost civilizations and stuff like that. Uh, and I had this kind of idea of that would be really neat to, to be able to do to, you know, if, you know, you're immortal and you're perfected and everything, you don't have to worry about the dangers of exploring the Amazon, and, you know, just kind of more explore God's creation and more explore the history of, of mankind on the earth. But the way this looks like it's described, um, it doesn't look like that'll be the case. Uh, it looks like something better, a new earth, new heavens will, will be created. Now, 
there's uh, countless science fiction, science fantasy written about the exploration of the universe and galaxies and, and, and you know, spaceships and all these other things. This makes me think that these kind of descriptions make me think that, that we've got this, you know, this perfect universe ahead of us, this new creation, this new unexplored territory, the boldly go where no man has gone before kind of thing. And we will have the chance to explore and we will have the chance to create and we will have the chance to build and do all these things in the new heavens and the new earth. And we won't have any of the the calamity that comes with sin. We won't have any of the suffering or the danger that comes with sin. So if you're if you're really interested in being a painter, for example, like imagine being able to perfect painting and just to be able to work on, on being able to paint for a thousand years. Imagine you're Bach and you're able to work on music and compose music for two thousand years straight and just just really work on this on this art uh, and and how how much you could glorify God with that music with you know the amount of time and, and no illness to worry about and nothing negative to worry about. So I think that's this these verses kind of tell us a bit about what to expect after heaven, after death, after the resurrection, after the final day, what to expect. Now again, I thought it might be kind of neat to go and and see, you know, explore lost civilizations. But this this doesn't seem to be promising that. <laughs> and what I want is no is what's best. God knows what's best, and that's what he's going to give us uh, on the last day. So this is kind of, this is, this is a, for me, I, at least, maybe if, maybe you don't care about it, for me, this is kind of an interesting section to speculate, like, what is it, what the new heavens and the new earth are going to, you know, going to be like? Everybody wants to think about what heaven's going to be like, you know, clouds and Philadelphia, cream cheese, halo, and uh, halos. Yeah, hey, we're all play up there playing halo. Uh, halos and harps and, and wings. and so, You don't turn into an angel when you die, by the way. That's not something that happens. Angels are different. You're you're made in the image of God. Angels are not. Um, uh, you're a higher being than than angels. You don't get downgraded to an angel when you go to heaven. But everybody speculates about heaven, you know. And there's you know there's passages that talk about heaven. You got you got gold roads and and pearly gates and all these other things. Uh, and poor Saint Peter has to stand up front outside of the party and <laughs> be the doorkeeper, uh, be the bouncer. Uh, so people speculate about heaven, but I don't see too many people actually speculating about the new heavens and the new earth, especially since heaven is only going to be a temporary place, and then the new heavens and the new earth are going to be the the permanent place where we'll, we'll dwell perfectly with God. Um, uh, that's I don't know. I, it, it's kind of interesting that, that people have really latched onto heaven, but then again, a lot of people tend to think, well, you know, heaven is the eternal resting place of the saints. And I try, I do try when I'm talking about, you know, eternal life in sermons and things like that. I do try to, to, to talk about, you know, well, you know, your, your mother who died in the faith is now in heaven. And then on the last day, we'll all go to the new heavens and the new earth. I try to make the distinction between heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, but a lot of times it's easy just to kind of slip into the slip into the common error of, you know, well, we all die and go to heaven and we stay there forever. Like, that's not really what the Bible says. But anyways, eschatology is fun. Anyways, so that's kind of Second Peter verse, or chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. And those were some of the things that, um, those were some of the things that, that I that I saw in the text. There's some other things in the text that talk about, you know, how you should live. You should live in godliness and holiness and things like that. The expectation of, well, you should, you're a Christian. You're already saved. You already have faith. You're already saved. Now you should behave like it. There is an expectation. There is a third use of the law. There is an expectation that Christians should behave in a certain way, even after being saved. It's not saying that that your actions cause you to be saved, that your good behavior causes you to be saved. But now that you are a saved and a chosen people, you should act like it. That's kind of 
um, some of the text here. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent, be found without spot or blemish, and at peace. Well, the way you can be found without spot or blemish is to be covered in the blood of the Lamb, to be covered by the righteousness of Christ, not by your own works. But you already knew that. That's why you're Lutheran. <laughs> okay, so that was the text that I went over for the, um, the second Sunday in Advent, again, through your lectionary, Series B. Um, yes, there's Mark 1 as well, but I didn't really preach on that. I preached on the epistle, mostly. And it was all about patience. Now let's get into the text that I used for the Advent midweek service. So this year, sometimes we do kind of the pastors in the area do kind of an Advent or Lenten midweek rotation. We go and preach. We basically, <laughs> we write one sermon, then we go and preach them at multiple multiple congregations. So we get multiple weeks worth out of, out of a single written sermon. So we get to work together. Many hands make light work. Uh, that hasn't happened this year. This year, it was just my father and I went and uh, wrote sermons for the three Advent midweeks. And we said, okay, well, we've got to come up with a theme first. Uh, we've got to come up with a theme. What, you know, what can we divide by three? And we've had things that we've divided by four. I think previous year I did something like um, kind of four big figures in, in, in Advent or something like that. And it was like the angel Gabriel, Herod, Mary, and Joseph or something like that. Uh, and then obviously, you know, Jesus is Christmas, even Christmas. But so we would divide it by four. This year we divided it by three. So what we, what we landed on was we landed on kind of three interactions with uh, the angel, with the angel Gabriel, presumably. Um, this is the annunciation of John the baptizer to, to Zechariah, or not Zechariah. Is that his name? Whatever. John's dad. <laughs> uh, the, his, the annunciation from Gabriel to him, where he says, you know, you'll, you're going to have a son and, and you're going to call him John. Um, then there's the annunciation. This is the one that I did uh, this this past Wednesday. The annunciation to to Mary. You know, uh, the, this is the um, uh, you know all generations will call you blessed. That sort of thing. You know, behold, you will conceive a son. And then of course I did the uh, Isaiah chapter seven. I included that as one of the readings as well. And then the next Wednesday, spoiler alert, will be my father will be preaching on the annunciation from Gabriel to Joseph. And in each of these enunciations, in each of these interactions with the angel, the phrase do not be afraid or some variation of do not be afraid is present. For Mary, it's not, you know, do not be afraid as, as soon as Gabriel shows up. Um, she basically, you know, she's concerned about, you know, how can this be and, and whatever. And then he says, you know, don't be afraid later on. Um, and I believe when he's talking to Joseph, he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So the don't be afraid kind of phrase uh, is included in all of these. For Ze Zechariah, what is Zechariah, whatever. I how am I forgetting this dude's name? Like, a, <laughs> it's, it's a Z one. Um, the father of John the Baptist, the angel shows up to him and basically says, stop being afraid. I mean, if you look at the language, it's not just don't be afraid. And it's okay. You were afraid. Now you can stop being afraid. Uh, and, and he, and he says, you know, your, your wife and her old age will bear a son. And you know, John the Baptist, that kind of thing is kind of, kind of cool. I think the text I paired with that, I actually paired, um, the, the the promise of Samson, the birth of Samson, is the text that I selected uh, to pair with the 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 promise of John the Baptizer. So for this week, I did uh, the Annunciation to Mary, and so this is Luke chapter one, verses twenty six through thirty eight in the ESV, and it goes like this: In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age will conceive a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Good stuff. So yeah, so the the focus of these midweek sermons has been on the do not be afraid. Uh, This midweek sermon in particular, I focus on why would Mary be afraid? I talked about that Mary actually did have sin and we should all be afraid of, of the wrath of God. Were it not for Christ who died in our place? And Mary too was saved by the death of Christ on the cross. Mary was Say Jesus was Mary's savior. Jesus saved Mary because Mary sinned and and fell short of the glory of God and was justified freely by the death of of Jesus Christ, her savior and her son. So this is kind of, um, I asked the question, why should Mary have been afraid in the first place? And why was Mary's fear taken away? And then I kind of segue this into why you too may have your fear taken away as well. So with all of that, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward verse, um, and I've got about a seven-minute sermon about it. Uh, I, I, you know what? I'll do this. I'll do this sermon first. I'll do the midweek sermon first, and then I'll go back to the, uh, the Advent 2 sermon. So with that, I hope you enjoyed this. God bless you, and take care. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A famous actor once said, The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It's Ronald Reagan, some actor that I guess was on TV for a while or something. This is the sort of idea that comes to mind when an angel of the Lord appears to a person and says, do not be afraid. Our instinct might be to say, oh, (laughs) if you don't mind, I'm going to be very afraid right now. Just, whew, that's an angel. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Really, really. The glory of an angel. I love the, the angel Gabriel from heaven came. How did it describe Gabriel in that song? The wings, the wings of snow, snowy wings and eyes of flame. That's a little terrifying. That's a little terrifying. So when an angel shows up and says, do not be afraid, as what we talked about in the last, uh, last midweek sermon, was the angel appearing to Zechariah, the, the father of John the baptizer. And then next week, Spoiler alert, an angel appears to Joseph. This week, an angel is appearing to Mary. So in all of these cases, do not be afraid is a phrase that they utter. Do not be afraid, says the scary, terrifying being. Now, in spite of the reassuring words, my natural feeling, if an angel appeared to me, would be to be terrified. Either in the case of an angel or in the case of the government trying to help. The main difference between the government and an angel, of course is that the angel really is there for a good reason, to deliver news and to, rep- and to represent a perfectly loving God. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger, somebody who speaks from God. Now, last Wednesday, we heard about a visit of an angel to the father of John the baptizer. In today's reading, we hear about Gabriel's visit to Mary, the mother of God. And again, next week, we'll hear about Gabriel visiting Joseph. 
Once again, during this visit, we hear the phrase, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, or stop being afraid, depending on how you read the grammar. You're afraid now, now stop it. You've had your afraid time. It, it, it's no more time, no more time to be afraid. Now stop being afraid. I've got a message for you. It's for a different person each week and for a different reason. And this begs the question, why might Mary be afraid? I mean, aside from the snowy wings and eyes ablaze. Why might Mary be afraid? And in this case, why is it time to stop being afraid? Now, throughout Scripture, whenever a prophet or an angel or God himself appears to a person, it was either for a very good reason or a very bad reason. Either the person was going to be blessed, like Jacob who wrestled with God, or the person was in big trouble. Think Balaam and his talking donkey, or Pharaoh and the ten plagues. When God or a messenger of God came to visit, it was either some really good news or some really bad news. So why was a messenger from God, an angel, visiting Mary? She hadn't done anything particularly spectacular to warrant God's positive attention. She wasn't famous. She wasn't Mother Teresa. She wasn't known throughout the world as, as some sort of holy saint who had never done anything wrong. She was Mary of the line of David. Why would an angel of God be giving her positive attention? What could this possibly mean? She had every reason to be afraid, in fact, because Mary knew she was a sinner. She was a faithful believer, which means she knew she was a sinner. Like all people, the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, who is good but God alone. This includes Mary. She sinned. She knew this. Now, Gabriel immediately gives comfort to Mary. He immediately comforts her. She doesn't have to be afraid, or rather, it's time to stop being afraid. Eyes of flame, I get it, but we, can, we have a message to deliver here. It's time to stop being afraid. He tells her this because... His reason for the visit is not for punishment. He's not going to punish her. But he's here to announce that she's been chosen by God, favored by God for a very special task, to bear Jesus, God's own son. Now again, even though she was a sinner and did not do anything to deserve special recognition by her deeds, God chose to favor her. He selected her. She would give birth to the Savior of all of mankind. Now, in the reading from Isaiah that we had from the Old Testament, God had selected her all the way back then. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That was the promise all the way back in Isaiah. That was how far before her birth even she was chosen. Now, at this point, learning about the reason for Gabriel's visit, I doubt Mary was still afraid, though it seemed like she was a bit confused. It didn't sound like she was afraid anymore. After all, how could Mary bear a child if she was still a virgin? This is the question she asks. Now, Gabriel goes on to tell her that she would conceive and give birth as a virgin, that this would be a miraculous conception, a miraculous birth. He didn't give any details beyond that, and that was enough for Mary. She accepted God's will joyfully, and she'd go on to bear the Christ child. Mary had a good reason to be afraid, and that reason was taken away. That reason was resolved, so her fear was no longer present. Do not be afraid, and she no longer was. Likewise, God desires that you live your life without fear as well. You absolutely have had plenty of things to be afraid of, pain and sickness and death, and of course the government trying to help. 
But God resolves all of these fears. He has the last words. He resolves all of these worries. No amount of suffering you can endure on earth. No amount of suffering, no hardship, no pain. None of that will follow you into the promise of eternal life. It will end. This was the reason we were given Christ through Mary. This was the reason that all the things that cause us fear, that these would be defeated. That while we might have moments of fearing these things, while we might have moments of suffering these things, they would not last. That God would make all things right. He would make all things better. In fact, better than ever. With his death on the cross, Jesus took on himself all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of your shame. He removed these things from you forever. At the same time, he took away all of the punishment, all of the consequences for your sin. And thanks be to God that just like Mary, you don't have to be afraid anymore. You have nothing to fear anymore. You have nothing to be afraid of because it will all work out in the end. That's God's promise. It all has been worked out already. That's God's love. Instead of fear, you are free to live with love, joy, and peace. And now that peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text for the sermon this, this morning is from the epistle reading which you have just heard. This is interesting because a few weeks ago we had a sermon that was based on the, um, on the return of Christ and the, uh, the virgins, the ten virgins, the five, uh, the five who were prepared and the five who were not prepared, the five who had enough oil, the five who didn't. So I was, I was quickly skimming through the first, the first few sentences and I thought, man, I've already done this sermon. Already. This sermon about being prepared and I was like, oh no, 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 this is different. This is a different text entirely. There's this concept in scripture it shows up a few times. It's the idea that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Will come like a thief in the night. Now, immediately when I read that sentence, I thought, well, I've already done this, right? This is the, uh, this is the ten virgins, right? Well, no, no. There is, there is text. I, I, I think in that text it actually does talk about uh, the Lord returning like a thief in the night. But the idea is that this is a concept that is repeated a few times in Scripture. The idea is that nobody knows exactly the day or the hour of the return. As I wrote here a few weeks back, Jesus told a parable of the ten virgins with their lamps. Some had oil, some did not. Some were prepared, some were not. Now in the middle of the night, a bridegroom appeared, and they were caught off guard. Some were ready, while others scrambled in vain to respond to the situation. Now this is a fascinating concept, because on one hand, we should expect the return of Christ. But we should also respect. Uh, expect it as a surprise. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the promise of the Messiah was that it would be some future event, an unanticipated time. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God sent prophets to tell people to prepare for the Messiah, to prepare for Christ. On one hand, it is a surprise when Christ shows up. On the other hand, for believers, it isn't really that big of a surprise because we knew it was going to happen sooner or later. We anticipate the coming of Christ, we just don't know the exact hour. Now John the baptizer is out in the wilderness preparing the way for Jesus. And then, unshockingly, 
that Jesus, he's been preparing the way for, appears. It's simultaneously exactly what we were told to expect and a surprise to many people. Now, the virgins of the, of the, the ten virgins in the parable, they knew that their bridegroom would come in the middle of the night at some point when it was dark. So they were able to prepare, even though they weren't exactly sure of the time, exactly sure of the hour. Likewise, as Christians, we have been told that Christ will return. We have been told to prepare to expect the return of Christ, even though we don't know the specific timeline. Now, it can be tempting to be anxious about this. It sure would be nice if Christ returned sooner rather than later. We might start getting impatient and saying, well, why hasn't he come back yet? After all, there are wars and rumors of wars. There are trials and tribulations. There's sickness, calamity, catastrophe, social and political unrest. Lord have mercy, come Lord Jesus. Why hasn't he shown up yet? Now certainly God knows that we are enduring all these things in the world. So why hasn't he returned? Now John the baptizer ate ate bugs in the wilderness for a while. The virgins sat in the dark for a while. And the people of Israel suffered captivity for a while. The entire book of Judges, the Babylonian captivity, take your pick. Now, just like us, all of them looked forward to a future arrival of a Savior, patiently or impatiently. And Peter writes this to us. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So as uncomfortable as our world is right now, as many things as are going wrong right now, God hasn't forgotten about us. The promise of the return of Christ is not any less likely just because it hasn't happened yet. Peter writes that there's a reason that there's such a delay in the return of Christ. It's not so we Christians should suffer more, that God says, you know, I'm just going to just keep suffering a bit more. You know, I'm running behind. You know, my laundry's not done. It's still on the drying cycle. Uh, you know, the kids aren't ready to get in the car yet. They're going to buckle. There's not excuses being made for, you know, why God hasn't been, able to, hasn't been able to show up yet. But rather, there's this very specific reason. Why hasn't God returned yet? Because he wishes to allow non-Christians to come to faith. He wishes to allow more people to be gathered under the cross. God is willing to put up with a thousand years of disobedience and unfaithfulness from people who reject him. A thousand years of insults just so he can save them. And he will be just as patient with those thousand years as if he only had to wait a day for them to come to faith. It's worth it for God to endure patiently with mankind if it means that more people are going to be forgiven. More people are going to be saved. It's worth it. As much as we want God to hurry up, as much as we want to return, as much as we want God to hurry up and return this moment, we have to keep in mind that he is working on something. He is currently doing something. He is currently working on bringing more people to faith. As much as we want to be with our Savior, the more people who join us in faith and forgiveness, the better. It isn't up to us to rush God, but rather... We should be be patient. We should allow him to accomplish his loving purpose. He's not wasting his time and he's not wasting our time. After all, God was patient with us. The least we can do is wait, living our lives in holiness and godliness, as Peter suggests. Well, as God commands through Peter, rather. 
He knows best how to prepare for that eternal wedding feast. So when I was a child in my father's house growing up, when I was a young'un, knee-high to a grasshopper, some might say, we would wait until after church on Christmas morning to open gifts. Now, I know there's some traditions where you open it on Christmas Eve, there, you know, Christmas Eve night. Sometimes everybody rushes down before, you know, parents are even awake and the kids have already torn all the, all the gifts open. They're already playing with it by the time the parents get out of bed. But in our house, in our household, we wait. We go to church first and then we get to it. We get to have we get to have a, a we have pretty big lunch and presents and all these other things. But we wait. We do things in a proper order. <laughs> so we would wait until after church on Christmas morning to open gifts. Now, my father. This was uh, this was when we were living in Los Angeles. My pa, my father was a pastor of a bilingual church, and he would have a Spanish service an hour after the English service. So we would be there for with him for the English service. And then an hour after the English service finished, he would begin the Spanish service. Now, as children, we're eager to open these gifts, eager to enjoy Christmas morning, see what, our, see what love our parents had lavished on us in the form of toys, books, and socks. <laughs> so when my mother and so when it was when it was just my mom was at home and we children were at home fighting with each other after church, we would have to wait a few hours staring at these wrapped presents like I know it's there just just a peek just, just shake the box a little I just want to op- just open one of them please we knew it was there we knew that this wonderful joy awaited us but we could not touch it yet we knew something good was inside these boxes but we didn't know fully how good now while mom was patient she would go around getting the house ready but we children we would get anxious and impatient who desperately want dad to finish up with his service and come home. In fact, there may have been a few times when I wished he would just skip the Spanish service entirely and come home so we could get our presence right now. The truth is, it was best that he was at church. It was best that he was delayed. The church needed a Spanish pastor. These people needed to hear the word of God. And as much as it was a good thing for us to open gifts together, it was an even better thing that people were able to hear God's word in the meantime. While our joy was delayed for a time, out of God's love for his people in the Spanish service, it was worth it. That delay was worth it. And our joy wasn't any less just because we had to wait a little longer. Now, similarly, as Christians, our joy in the last day is delayed because God loves the world so much that he desires all to come to the knowledge of their Savior. God was patient with us. We can be patient with him. He's going about doing good work. And this delay in no way will diminish the joy that we have on the last day. In fact, it will only increase the joy since we will be joined by even more believers in the kingdom. We may not know the exact hour of Christ's return, but we can prepare for it. We can anticipate it and look forward to it. Not in impatience, but with understanding that God still loves us and God is working out his love for the rest of the world as well. Now the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.